Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And today, we're taking a problematic fave and revivifying him. Excelsior! Is it is it Halloween now when people are listening to this? No, this is the uh, beginning of the spooky month. So well, I, welcome I, I, to the yeah. season. October, the entire month of October is Halloween. I guess. I guess. we Did we have it an October 31st episode last year? I think we might have. I think we might have, too. I don't remember doing... We definitely did a spooky comic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're, this year we're doing a spooky comic again. I'm excited for this. Jaina has been telling me about Frankencastle for years, and it has always confused me and gotten me very excited. I want to know what the heck this was. So when the opportunity presented itself, I pitched it, and here we are talking... Well, Frankencastle. <laughs> Frankencastle. This is like a legendary story, right? I feel like this is like so audacious that it kind of had staying power. People still uh, talk about it in hushed voices in the backs of comic shops. I think so. I, I, I don't know. I'd never really heard of it until you brought it up. Really? Okay, so maybe yeah. uh, maybe I'm just uh, inflating its hype. I just, I figure like, like Cap Wolf, a similar... Uh, mm-hmm making a familiar Marvel character spooky. I, I feel like this kind of comes up a lot when people are talking about the most ridiculous thing that they ever did with Punisher, especially because people liked this story when it came out. This was well received. Interesting. I would not have expected that, especially considering how Remender's Marvel work is often received. Oh, we're, we're going to get into that. But first, I thought we'd talk a little bit about Dark Reign. What familiarity do you have with the uh with dark rain dark rain elias we've talked about it a few times on the show uh and i think we even brought it up when we were doing like the best marvel events of the uh 2000s or you know 2000 to 2020 and we talked uh, some eternals i think touched on it Mm -hmm. yeah and some guardians of the galaxy yeah dark rain's this i don't want to say weird era because it's actually very well received but it's the time after Tony Stark Civil War the Initiative, where, you know, that's the immediate fallout from Civil War. Norman Osborn has been put in charge of Shield or what remains of Shield. I don't quite remember. But that's why it's kind of the dark reign. Norman Osborn has a lot of power. He's using his political power. And like there's just this era of paranoia, which I think is ref- was reflected also in the larger American culture as we were really digesting the war in Iraq and the fallout from all of our 9-11 policies and the Bush era. 100%. And um, the, one of the weirdest things about Dark Reign is the very first issues of it are coming out uh, in the very first days of the Obama presidency. Oh, yeah. Is when that's coming. But so it's it's so very clearly about Bush administration politics but it gets weird, like um, two moments that I could recall, like explicitly calling connection uh, attention to this mm-hmm. is um, in the very first issue uh, of that, like kicks off Dark Rain, the one shot. You see Norman Osborn on Air Force One meeting with the president and it's mm. President Obama in shadows. It's very clearly him. Um, and he gets captured by a false flag green goblin. So Osborn can save him. Interesting. 
but it's it was weird that they're foisting um they're they're foisting the Bush politics on um, Obama as an administration. And then I I think in a later issue, not in the same issue, there's a scene where Wolverine and Spider Man are conspiring on a rooftop across from uh, Osborne's tower. And they say something to the effect of like uh, last time an asshole had a lot of power in the United States. It took a couple of years for us to uh, work our way to kicking him out. And then they uh, fist bump on it. And it was just like really boomer politics coming out of Spider-Man and uh, Wolverine in a way that I find kind of charming. <laughs> it, would, it would be that era. But so that's the that's the vibe of um, of Dark Rain as an era. And I really like it. It's not the first time comics have done a like the villains are in charge story. Yeah. Yeah. It won't be the last. It won't be the last. But I thought this was a fun execution because of those uh, Bush politics touches, but also just like um, uh, I like the idea the public thinks that all the all the famous superheroes have been replaced by villains as far as the public knows. And the superheroes themselves are on the run, which is like a fun secret identity thing that's kind of harder to pull off in today's Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the, the pace of technology. But like so, uh, so Venom is running around and people think he's Spider-Man <laughs> and Bullseye is wearing Hawkeye's costume. Oh, right. And um, and relevantly to the story we're talking about yep. today, uh, Dokken, Wolverine's son, uh, is replacing Wolverine. Which oh, I did not tattoos. know. You didn't know? No, you didn't know I didn't part. know this was a thing. You didn't know that Dokken replacing Wolverine was a thing or you didn't know Dokken was a thing full stop? I didn't know Dokken replacing Wolverine was a thing. Yeah. And that uh, he led the, the book. Um, yeah, he got his own a bunch of they had a dark Wolverine series. There was a every one of those characters I mentioned got at least a mini series. I'm trying to remember um, Moonstone replaced at the time Ms. Marvel replaced Carol Danvers. Right. And then Sentry joined the team and he was just Sentry. And uh, Novar joined the team as I think this is when he started going by Protector. I don't remember. I don't know. But Marvel Boy. That that whole Novar thing is the story behind that is wild. Yeah, and this is a weird little swerve where he kind of um naively joins the bad guy Avengers team because he doesn't know any better because he's a moron. He's a hot moron. <laughs> but so we didn't read the um all the issues in, in Frankencastle. We read the arc that is now called Frankencastle, but this was part of the 2009 Punisher run um by Rick Remender as the primary architect of it and i guess we got to talk rick remender yes and i did read the first 10 issues oh you did because i wanted i was curious and i'm glad we left them off full stop i reread them and kind of liked them yeah eh. i'm just we'll I, I i'm glad that i feel like frankencastle as a whole is cohesive without those first 10 issues They're oh absolutely extraneous. it's like two different series yeah completely uh, do you want to take Rick Remender to start or do you want me to? Um, okay. So Rick Remender starts an animation. Okay. And, um, what kind of animation stuff was he doing? I feel like he was doing animation stuff in, uh, in like the late nineties, early two thousands. Like Disney DreamWorks or like Ralph Bakshi? Stuff like, um, like Iron Giant, Anastasia, Titan AE. Oh, okay. So Don Bluth. Like, or- yeah, late Don Bluth, early 2000s animation. Um, okay. And then he keeps on doing like um, he's involved in like a bunch of superhero animated stuff and Ninja Turtles and, and stuff like that. And also um, he 
is while in the animation world is uh, drawing like a uh, humorous comics, which I could unfortunately not track down. I imagine they have aged poorly. Uh, almost certainly. But I first became familiar with Remender. Um, I guess I kind of knew about him from his Dark Horse work. I, you know, his name was on in my brain as like mm. an interesting guy. Uh, what was it, Fear Agent was his big comic there? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, but this is kind of him coming into a pretty big, pretty uh, ups- pretty like roller coaster of a ride with him for Marvel, right? <laughs> I think that's an understatement. An understatement. OK, so why don't oh, you yeah. take us through uh, your perception of his Marvel timeline and then we can touch on his post Marvel work a little bit, too. So I don't really know what he was doing prior to taking Punisher. I think Punisher was his first. Uh, he I, during this era, there's a lot of things where um, like guys who are the shit in comics now be, have their name under somebody who is more established at that time. Yeah, but he's starting this just on his own. Punisher number one, I think, is just Rick Remender. I think he uh, Remender was also uh, credited on some of the later issues in the prior Punisher run by Matt Fraction. Ah, OK. So I think that's where he, and that's how they were doing stuff. Then they would put your on training wheels with their, their like uh, top guy to see if mm-hmm. you could uh, hold the series yourself. Yeah. And I think they still do that, but they do it more with the minis instead of the main series. Yeah, which I like a lot better. Yeah, because then you don't have stuff like uh, uh, Secret Warriors uh, by Bendis <laughs> before Hickman. And it's like completely not the same. <laughs> I don't know. Those first those those early issues feel pretty much like Hickman with just like a little bit of Bendis instead of the other way around. Doesn't but, uh, it doesn't enhance the story. No, but we're here to talk Remender. Right. My first experience with him was reading the Captain America run from 2012 which okay. starts with Castaway, Castaway and Dimension Z. And I love this run. I know it's very divisive and people don't really like it, but I did. I thought it was great. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it's 25 issues and it ended up setting up what would become Secret Invasion after he left the Sam Wilson book after six issues. At the same time he was doing Cap, I believe he was also writing a bunch of X-Men titles. Maybe it was just Uncanny X-Men? I I believe at the time he was doing Uncanny Avengers. Oh, okay. But Um, he eventually spearheaded Avengers X-Men Axis, which the basic premise is everyone's moral axis gets flipped by... The resurrected brain of Onslaught mixed with Red Skull. It's a bad book. TBH, I kind of like that setup. I don't know. I don't know if I like the setup or not. I just know I did not like Axis. Axis is one of... Bloated and really weird. So you skipped, uh, maybe because you read it later, but you skipped uh, Remender's big breakout book for Marvel. I guess... Maybe because you've never read it. Holy shit. Uh, so the first big thing that remained, I, I, um, the book we're talking about today, Frankencastle, definitely uh, made some waves and people thought it was audacious. But after that, uh, Remender did Uncanny X-Force. Do you know about this run? Oh, I think so. Yes, I have never read it. So yeah, so this is a tremendous run. It's one of my favorite X-Men runs in any X book ever. And um, it's got art by all sort like they run through a murderer's row of cool artists. Mm-hmm. And also, I think um, Greg Land shows up for an issue, maybe. 
<laughs> too. But uh, Jerome Pena is in there. Phil Noto, Ron Garney are all doing arts in the, oh, doing wow. early art in there. Uh, Asad Ribic, if I didn't mention him. Ribic, I love him. And this art, this was a dark story about like mutant assassins, and it's really good. It's epic. It's like devastatingly sad. It, it's cool, and it's cool, mm-hmm. and it has kind of defining characterizations for a lot of those characters, including Phantom X, uh, Betsy Braddock, and um, Deadpool. It, it gave Deadpool a little bit of nuance when he was a very silly character. Damn. Yeah, so this was like a, a miracle of a book. And after that, they put Remender on Captain America. And like you said, that was a more divisive run. And mm-hmm. then Axis was like, he was, by, by that point, he was run out of town on a rail. Like Axis yeah. was the most radioactive book I had ever seen a comic book writer publish and i now in hindsight kind of feel like he was just throwing scripts at marvel and saying get me the fuck out the door and marvel was uh putting the blame on him publicly as well yeah it sounds like he had from the way he talks about it from the way he talks about just he said corporate work he's like has a toxic relationship with marvel um recently he We'll probably get into this a little bit, but recently he just signed an exclusive deal with Image Comics for another three years with his production company, Giant Generator, whatever he's calling it. And he was like, I was offered some, you know, Avengers and X-Men from Marvel, which I believe I believe that they would, especially now, you know, see if they could get him to write one again. But he's like, I turned them down. I don't want to do corporate work anymore. I want to just do stuff that I own. I'm like, good for him. But also, you can tell that there's still that, like, I don't want to work for you guys anymore. It doesn't matter if all the leadership has changed. Yeah. Uh, Access, by the way, is one of the reasons I write for Multiversity Comics. Really? Yeah. The um, Multiversity's uh, hilarious coverage of Access every week kept me reading it and having a good time with it. That's really cool. You can go back and read it. I, I was already a fan of the site at that point. Um I first uh, started reading Multiversity because of um, Morning Glories, the image mystery series mm. Ooh. <laughs> but the uh the access stuff was like the was very uh formative to my comic reading at a certain time but there's one other thing or two other things with remander i wanted to touch on okay one is that so while all these books we were just talking about were coming out like uncanny x-force and his captain america run this is running hand in hand with the explosion of the mcu oh Oh, because like, when does he start yeah. writing that Captain America book? 2012 in 2012. So that's the year the first Avengers is out. Yeah. And yeah. And it becomes like the biggest movie in the world. And that's when like because the, the the run from Avengers until Age of Ultron is crazy. Of like how ubiquitous stuff became, how uh, I remember you just like I, I would walk in the Bronx and I could not look away from like Marvel stuff everywhere. <laughs> Everything was branded. And um so there's a lot of scrutiny and there's a lot of like fandom stuff. And Comic-Con is uh, very uh, culturally central, I feel like, in a way that maybe it's not as much anymore. Yes, it's still quite big, but I think you're right. I think it's cultural centrality has started to to kind of wane. And maybe that's for the best. Yeah, maybe that's for I mean, post-COVID, certainly uh, there's questions. I got sick mm. every time I went to a Comic-Con. Before COVID oh, yeah. even. But so I remember Remender being the target of two um, fan fan complaint campaign. I, I don't like a, I, I don't want to quite litigate every step of it, but that I find really fascinating looking back. The first mm-hmm. 
was um, when he was writing Uncanny Avengers, um, he wrote Alex Summers having this monologue about kind of like assimilation politics. And he says a bunch of things. You remember this? The M word. Yeah, he says, don't call me the M word. The M word represents everything I hate. Call me Alex. Mm hmm. Now, at the time and to this day, I love that scene. Alex Summers is a dipshit and saying dipshit <laughs> stuff in public and on TV like he is wont to do. This is great characterization from Recommender. OK, but there was a real case of um, writing about something means you endorse that position kind of stuff. Mm. And Remender was really taken to task. He was getting called out in interviews and on social media. It was like a whole fucking thing. And then later, I remember there was like a real flashpoint where there was a scene in his very weird Captain America run where Sam Wilson was in a romantic relationship with, I believe the character's name was uh, Jet Black. Is that correct? Mm, Maybe. She was from Dimension Z. She was the sister of Ian Rogers. Uh, I read this run. Yeah, the the middle part of the run with the iron nail and all that is a bit more fuzzy for me. That's totally fair. But um, there was this weird little thing where um, there was a, a campaign to fire Rick Remender because um, Sam Wilson was uh, engaging in pedophilia with this Jet Black character because Dimension Z time works differently. So actually, she's only like a couple minutes older or whatever. <sighs> That's, you know, she's like two years older, however old she was supposed to be. That's exceedingly stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I, for years, I was like, this seems like a bad faith argument. And it was one of those things where, like, the the story got out there and then outlets were publishing that people were publishing the story kind of thing. Uh-huh. People are saying that Rick Remender is uh, doing a pedophilia. Yeah. And um, so recently, eh, by recently, I mean in the last couple of years, I just remembered all this. It came up in conversation with someone and I I freaked out and I'm not going to I'm not going to say any names, but it's still out there and you can track any of this down as easily as I did. But I found those old articles about Rick Remender and then I found what they were uh, citing and I went back and back and back and it was like to an original social media post on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever. And I found the user and I found that the user was very active in the uh, Steve Rogers, Bucky Barnes slash fix scene, especially of the MCU time. Okay. now I'm not in a court of law or anything here, so I don't know if I could uh, prove my evidence. But it seems to me that the narrative was that somebody who uh, had strong feelings about a a slash fiction relationship Mm. from the movie series was frustrated with uh, what was going on in the comics at the same time and uh, said something that turned into something bigger. Okay. But I just think that really, as you're saying, that really represents how like fed up and uh, punk Remender feels about all this corporate shit. Yeah. You, you're targets of a disingenuous fan campaign and then Marvel leaves <laughs> you holding the bag. I feel like that's, that's, and you can feel that, uh, you know, anarchic is a nice way of calling it, but also kind of that, uh, I don't know, like he's got like a chip on his shoulder. What's the word for that? No, he does have a chip on his shoulder. That really um, comes through in all his writing, I think. Yeah, there's a bitterness. Yeah, yeah. There's a bitterness and- to it all. You really feel it in Deadly Class. Like the right. middle bits of Deadly Class, you can feel that. And Deadly Class is a lot more personal to him, taking a lot of stuff mm-hmm. from his, his life. It's more a little more autobiographical. Yeah, that series is fascinating. 
the changes it goes through. And like you can see him change as a writer in the way he approaches that story specifically. Really and fascinating. Then he's the showrunner of the TV show. And that's where I the, – uh, the end of our Rick Remender section is that's where he is now is he's been in TV since Deadly Class became a show. Yes. I mean he's been doing – he's been in TV, but he's been doing his own uh, – you know, his image comics for for a bit. He did the scumbag. He did uh, a righteous thirst for vengeance, which is excellent. There was that uh, very that, bloody. That one about the the driver, the cool stunt driver lady. Uh, Ride or die, I think is what it was called. Ride or die, that was all right. Yeah, Bang Bengal, great artist. Yeah, art did a lot there. Um, I didn't much care for, but I read quite a bit of. Or maybe Rider Glory. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, because there's glory sounds right. Um, if only there was a way of finding this out. <laughs> but Black Science. Yes. It was called Death or Glory, that that series. And I like the Death or go. Glory. Black Science, I didn't like as much. Yeah, Black Science was, was I liked it, but it was kind of all over the place, story-wise. I yeah, was a big it, was a big fan of Low. That's what really got me into his stuff. Oh, I never read that uh, one. The publishing schedule of that was a nightmare. A nightmare. It had like five issues, and then the next six issues took three years, and then the fi- like it was all over the place. Finally wrapped up. I still love it. Very short, 15, 16 issue series. But yeah, uh-huh. he's been mostly doing. He, he was definitely also hit pretty hard by Deadly Class's cancellation. Yeah, another uh, betrayal by a corporation in his career. Yeah, yeah. But so I think that, that yeah, that bitterness kind of comes through in his writing. And sometimes if you can um, harness that well, I think it can be a really cool tone for a story, which brings us to Mr. Uh, Francis Castiglione ah, or Frank Castle, as he calls himself now. The Punisher. Yeah. And uh, before we get into the books today uh, itself, just like um, let's check in about our old band and play it, our old pal Frank. Uh, do you like Punisher comics, Elias? No, not particularly. Yeah, I have no affinity for or, you know, revulsion against Punisher comics. They are fine. I've never really been a Punisher reader. I've always wanted to read the Garth Ennis run, but I, it's because I really like Garth Ennis's writing, even though it's sometimes you read one of his stories and you just feel gross afterwards. Yeah, uh, I uh, I full-throatedly endorse this, uh, Garth Ennis Punisher. I think it's great comics. Yeah, that's what that's all. That's what I've heard. Certainly gross. There's probably some homophobia. There's definitely some sexism. There's definitely fat phobia and ableism. Yeah, that's yeah, that's par for the course with that. It's like, I don't really want to read the boys, but I really loved his Hellblazer stuff. I kind of love the boys, too. (laughs) Preacher is one of the grossest comics I've ever read, but so well done. It, he, he's I always my thing about Garth Ennis is I say Garth Ennis is a capital R romantic. Even his grossest shit has a lot of heart. Yeah. Yeah. He's also not afraid to just be be like, this is the world. It's gross. It yeah, sucks. Is, and like uh, we're telling a story about the most extreme people in the world. That's why we want to tell stories about them. And they go to some extreme places. Yeah. And whether or not he does it well eh, depends on the story. But all right. So uh, iconic voice on Punisher, Garth Ennis. Um, and both of us were very skeptical about the recent Jason Aaron run. And I think both of us quite liked it. Correct. Yes. I. Uh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think that Disney's failure to put any stop to the like white God. nationalists who are appropriating their Punisher iconography is like one of the most upsetting acts of uh, empowering those sorts of people I've ever seen, considering how litigious Disney is with much more minor shit to like, you know, orphanages and whatnot with Mickey Mouse shit. Yeah, it's you think that they wouldn't want to be associated with murder and white supremacy. But here we are. No, they, they don't care. They don't care. I, I, I mean, they do care. They don't care about uh, the press uh, for tearing down an orphanage, but they uh, don't want people to hear that they aren't supporting the cops or whatever, I guess. But that being said, I actually feel like there's a lot more good Punisher comics than bad Punisher comics. Punisher was like conceived of in good faith to be critical of the character. And while there are a share of Punisher stories that think he's a really cool guy, I think, the, by and large, the majority of them are really into the tragedy of the character. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you don't often see Punisher with, like, a cool secret base or something. He's living at the back of a van or, like, an abandoned warehouse or a garage or under a bridge when you yeah, see like, that, where he sleeps. That might also be why I didn't love the first few issues of this run, is that he keeps getting, like, the cool action moments, you know, with the one-liners, the action movie star lines. I'm like, okay, this feels at odds with who the Punisher is and how I view the character. So when we got to Frankencast, I was like, okay, okay, I, I get, I, I feel this now. Uh, which is uh, not the first time Frank Castle has been like radically morphed into another being because there was yeah. also the um, Heaven's Angel Punisher in the early 2000s. Oh, I think I, was that when he was, directly working for god yeah the judeo-christian god as like the angel of death wild people really go hard on that comic it's not as bad as people say it is it, you know it's not a great comic but uh it's not as like uh offensive to good taste as people like to pretend absolutely wild but so, okay so now that that brings together all the themes we're talking about today and when we come back from the break we are going to talk about dark rain punisher and frankencastle Hello, my name is Alice W. Castle, and I host Force Ghost Coast to Coast on the Multiverse A Podcast Network. Each episode, we discuss all the news from the galaxy far, far away, from movies to comics to novels to TV to games and everything in between. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. Come join us next time, and may the Force be with you. And welcome back. We are talking Frankencastle. But before we can talk Frankencastle, we got to do the credits. And because this is mid-2000s, early 2010s Marvel, there are a lot of names. Deep breath, Elias. Good news is it starts simple. These issues were written by Rick Remender. He did all of the Punisher issues we've read, which is Dark Reign Punisher, the list number one, Punisher 1 through 16, and Frankencastle 17 through 21. And then there were two Dark Wolverine issues, numbers 88 and 89, which were written by Daniel Way and Marjorie Liu. 
The issues were penciled by John Romina Jr., who did the list number one, Tony Moore, Punisher 11 through 16 and Frankencastle 19 through 20, Mike Hawthorne, number 13, Roland Boshi, 15 and 17, Hefte Paolo, 18, Steven Segovia, Dark Wolverine 88 and 89, Paco Diaz, Dark Wolverine 88 and 89, and Frankencastle number 20, John Lucas, number 20, Dan Brereton, uh, Punisher 14 and Frankencastle number 21, and Andrea Muti on issue 21. These were inked by Klaus Janssen, the list number one, Tony Moore, Punisher 11 through 16 and Frankencastle 19 through 20, Mike Hawthorne on issue 13, Roland Boshi on issue 15 and 17, Hefte Paolo on issue 18, Guillermo Ortiz. Tego, Dark Wolverine 88 and 89, Cam Smith on 88, Craig Young on 89, Paco Diaz on 89, and Frankencastle number 20, John Lucas number 20, Dan Brereton number 14 and 21, and Luca Malisan on number 21. These were colored by Dean White, who did The List, Dan Brown, who did Punisher number 11 through 16 and Frankencastle 17 through 20, Lee Lowridge on issue 15, Antonio Fabella, Dark Wolverine 88 and 89, Dan Brereton on issues 14 and 21, and Luca Malasan on issue 21. These were lettered by Corey Petit, who did Frankencastle 17, 19 through 20, Dark Wolverine 88 and 89, and Joe Caramanga, who did The List number one, Punisher 11 through 16, and Frankencastle 18 and 21. Ugh. Everyone give I him a round it. of applause. Stop what you're doing. If you're driving your car, take your hands off the wheel and applaud <laughs> that man. He just read so many names. So many names. Uh, and this doesn't include the two artists that we're probably going to talk about a little bit. Jerome Opeña and uh, Tong Eng Huat, who did uh, the art for the first 10 issues that we're just going to briefly touch on in a second. But before that, I had two fun facts that I found out while perusing these credits pages. Uh, and that's... I knew that Sebastian Gurner was an editor at Marvel for a while, but this was the run where he went from assistant editor to main editor and started his editor relationship essentially with Rick Remender that lasted throughout, I think, almost all of his books and might even still continue now. I think I it does continue to this double day. Double-checked. Um, and then also, Sebastian Gurner's co-writer on Shirtless Bear Fighter, Jody Hoop, was also an assistant editor at this time on these books. Also, I love Shirtless Bear Fighter. You know what? That makes sense. There's a lot of Shirtless Bear Fighter energy in Frankencastle. Yes, there is. Uh, and fun fact number two, because there was just a note at the bottom of one of the Frankencastle issues being like, this takes place before Daredevil number 505. I looked up that issue. Marco Cicchetto drew that and drew that entire three issue series 10 years before he took on Daredevil you know, and basically conquered the book. I think that Daredevil is a character who has almost no bad comics to his name. You can start reading Daredevil pretty much at any time, and th there's very few, like, lulls. Mm -hmm. That's a rare dark spot in Daredevil, those issues that, he, <laughs> that he's drawing. That's so funny. It and, is like, very funny. Andy Dickelda has done better work elsewhere, too. Just, like, that's a story that really didn't, come, didn't hit, even though every, the talent was there and the idea was there. That's wild to me. That is funny. So... You wanted to talk about briefly those first 10 issues? Yeah, so I remember, um, so th this is exactly the time when I started reading Marvel every month, and this was in the period when I was reading every issue every month, which is something, do you still try to do that? I try to. I have not been successful at doing it recently, but, you know. I did that for a couple of years, and Mo Dark Rain was entirely in that spot. So I read all these issues and everything around them. And the cover to Punisher Volume 8, number one, is very striking, right? 
Yes. You see the cover I'm talking about? I believe so. It's got the yellow background and Punisher's taken aim. Yes. And yes, they use uh, that as the uh, as the credits page for a while. That image just without the background. Well, because this is paying tribute to Punisher's first appearance in Spider-Man, which is uh, oh, exactly yeah. like this cover. It, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. The yellow background. So I, I knew that going in. I had read those Spider-Man issues and um, I thought that was I thought that was a cool, you know, how they do recreations to evoke those ideas. Mm hmm. But the idea here is like, OK, Punisher should shoot Spider-Man with the rifle. That's going to really ruin Spider-Man's day. But Sentry is like nigh invincible. Yeah, he's a he's a complicated character that yeah, I do not, not want gonna, to get into. Um, I, yeah, we're not going to start uh, figuring out the whole century is no more relevant to then figuring out uh, Novar's situation. Hmm. But so the hook right away, I like and this is a mode that I like Punisher in, which is that part of the premise that's uh, baked into Punisher is that he's like a normal guy in the superhero world. And like mm. he only uses munitions, right? So how is he going to kill Sentry? And I always like those questions where he has to like, and the grosser, the better in a Punisher story. <laughs> yeah, the more blood, the more guts, the more gore. That seems to be his, uh, the mode of the day. But so these early issues are a lot of Punisher is trying to kill what people believe to be superheroes. And they're like, ah, oh, Punisher's finally lost it. He's taken out the good guys. But of course, that's not the case. Right, because the Thunderbolts are are uh, have been rebranded. It's all of the those villains pretending to be good guys. I forgot. I, I actually did not remember that when I was reading the beginning of this. Other yeah. than he's hunting Norman Osborn and everyone thinks Norman Osborn's the the shit. Yeah, but this is an entire kind of reversal of fortune mm. for him because at this point, Frank Castle's like this urban legend that people know uh, has a code. He would never go for the good guys. But now people are like, yeah, looks like Frank Castle is bad now. Yeah. And like the comic really kind of shows him as this like dark, just, well, monster. He like stalks out of a shadow, shoots a bunch of people and then disappears again. Like he's he's just he's only doing that a distant and unknowable figure. Yeah. And we've got our hacker dude uh, as a POV character in these early issues. Uh, Henry, also known as Microchip. Yes. But and there's a whole thing about his family coming back and then he lights his family on fire. <laughs> God. So this is the next thing I want to touch upon is so it evolves from a Punisher is hunting superhero stories, which I like into um punisher is getting involved in some like black magic to revive his dead family right because the hood is there yeah these are other tropes i like in punisher i don't think these are yeah, the best times these have ever been done but i also like that because punisher's formative tragedy is the idea of wanting revenge for the unjust death of his family mm -hmm. what if in a world of superhero fantasy you reverse that origin uh, would Punisher have a reason to fight if you could undead his family? And the answer in this one is he doesn't see like a black magic zombie version of his family as really existing and he kills them too. Yeah. I think both of these things have nothing to do with what's about to happen, but I think are really thematically interesting. The first, because as we'll talk about, Punisher 
is now like put into a different world. He's no longer going to be a human being. And so his like sense of morality, who should be punished and who's guilty starts to be like questioned in a similar way, right? Like when Hmm. the, when the guys you're hunting for are liked by the public, that changes how the public feels about you. And that's literalized when you turn into a monster. Yeah. And have to deal with monster politics. And then the black magic thing is also setting up the, the world he's about to dive into. And so we know that Frank Castle's reaction to seeing like dark forces that men was not meant to control is, yeah, I'll burn <laughs> that shit. I don't care. But then he gets turned into that. I just I think actually, despite being completely plot irrelevant and a huge tonal shift, uh, there's like some interesting thematic connections. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes the run, you know, feel feel kind of cohesive like it is one big story but the first part is yeah like like you said it's not plot relevant but it is tonally and thematically resonant and and when he burns his family that feels like the series finale you're just like okay next comic right yes it's just like so final It, it ties up every plot that it had introduced very nicely actually it's messed up it's a messed up issue it is a messed up issue. And if you're just reading Frankencastle, you do get like a flashback to that scene. Right. But um, I I uh, I like this Punisher story. I think they do it better in the recent Jason Aaron run. Right. He does a similar yes. thing. 100 percent. With Punisher uh, experimenting with dark magic to bring back his dead family members. Yeah. And it helps there that like the reason he's able to get over the same hump that he's not able to hear in terms of acceptance is she has been brought back. She is showing enough of the humanity that Mm -hmm. like something in him goes, Oh no. And also he knows that she can keep being brought back and being killed. Like the, the hood is not the hand. Yeah. Well, and um, it's kind of an easy out having them be so horrifying when they get, revived yeah but i um i i just like that emotional beat with punisher where um you're you're seeing his humanity as he's recognizing the lack of humanity in these facsimiles of his loved ones Mm. i i i'm definitely giving this comic more credit than it probably deserves i thought these issues were like fun and grimy and dark in a way that i sometimes like yeah, they're breezy too. There's not a lot of dialogue. They you you put it's all action pretty much. Um, there's well little scripted, well drawn action for the most part. Yeah, uh, I don't love, I don't love um, Hot's art, but that's fine. I much prefer Tony Moore's stuff, who does most of the Frankencastle. I really Which like the the energy he brings to the book. Rules. Tony Moore rarely uh, dips into superheroes. Yeah, uh, which brings us to actually the first issue, The List, drawn by your boy, John Romita Jr. So this is exactly at the time when I, John Romita Jr. is getting on my shit list. Which I, is, I love it. It's cemented with um, uh, the, that, the Captain America run he's going to do with Rick Remender after this. Yeah. But all of the stuff he was doing around Dark Reign and Heroic Age gagged me with a spoon. See, I still I still thought he did a great job on the list. Good oh, Norman stuff. Norman Osborn's hair looks like a torture device. <laughs> looks like Norman Osborn's hair looks like the agony crown. But it's so fun also now seeing him draw Norman Osborn 12, 13 years later. <laughs> it's 
I he's love seeing that comparison. He's he has more square. He has. Okay, Stark ran the list though. The list. What do we say about this? It's well, Dokken hunting down um, the Punisher because Norman Osborn's pissed at him basically taking down his hood operation because that's that's what leads to this. He was basically Punisher was basically taking out Osborn's operation behind the scenes and trying and kind of like muddying his legacy. The list was a series of one shots that was coming out about a year into Dark Reign and was the beginning of the end part of the story. Okay. And the idea was that Norman Osborn was looking back on his year in power of the people who were like still at large, the biggest thorns in his side. And um, he's sending each of his evil superheroes after to catch each of these people who for the last year have been uh, messing up his plans. Mm -hmm. And so each of these one shots is about one of the Dark Avengers versus one of the superheroes, usually in kind of like a mismatched pairing. Mm. I remember uh, Ronan is on the list and he gets kidnapped and tortured in, in the sequence Oof. of issues. But anyway, so he sends Wolverine's son Dokken after Frank Castle. And that's kind of a power mismatch, right? So Dokken is um, Wolverine's um, son who uh, he didn't know about until much later in their lives. As you do. Um, and of course, Dokken was trained to think that Wolverine like uh, abandoned him with malice. And he was neglected, like, objectively, so it's complicated, I guess. But he's, like, a bad boy. He doesn't like to wear a shirt. He's got cool tattoos. He's got two claws on uh, on his the front of his hand and then one dumb claw on the bottom of his hand. Oh, I always thought he just had the top two. I keep forgetting about the third one. The triangle claw. Yeah, stupid triangle claw. Um, and he's got, like, pheromone powers which yeah. in this era of comics were like used in extra gross ways. And I feel like now are kind of interesting. Yeah, it was definitely not quite on display as like the super gross in these issues. But you get the feeling that like Dokken was not using those in a great way. Yeah, I mean, and he's the villain here. He's like definitely yeah. the villain, which is cool because he's been on a real like slow burn redemption arc until now. He's just a, a good guy. He's um one of the good guys on Alpha Flight in the current mm -hmm. X-Men comics. Yeah, I love to see it. But so it's like a huge power mismatch, right? But you've been seeing this issue about Punisher outsmarting and trying to overcome superheroes, barely uh, staying ahead of them, right? Yeah, and he he, he thinks about it a lot because he has to. Yeah. And so you just try seeing trying to see how he's going to outsmart Dokken, how he is outsmarting Dokken, but he also knows that like he's already been beaten down a bunch. And you know, it just it'll take one good hit and Punisher's done. Right, which is classic. That happens mm -hmm. every once an arc in Punisher. He's taken to the brink like that. But so you're reading this month to month, right? And you got this Dark Rain story and um and now, like, things are shifting, and it feels like uh, it's a completely different book. And Punisher's luck just runs the fuck out. Yeah, and he's chopped it to bits and thrown off a roof. Yeah, into little bitty bits. He's just like, uh, Dokken, who's got big razor-sharp claws, uses them in ways that Wolverine doesn't use them on cartoons and stuff. Yeah, which must have been pretty shocking reading it at the time. Because obviously, Elias. you know, Frankencastle's coming out. Elias, I am here to tell you, it was shocking. I was very shocked. 
<laughs> and they didn't they kept they kept it uh, i don't remember them promoting that franken castle was coming out three months ahead or anything good it was a total surprise to me as a monthly reader good but that brings us to our main event that brings us to franken castle yes so francis is all his bits are uh kidnapped essentially <laughs> by morbius scooped up Je- the who's a werewolf by night but which werewolf by night was this, this? wasn't jack russell i thought it was jack i russell. think it was jack russell and who was the third guy in that scene living mummy the living mummy in Cantu. and what's the reptile guy's name uh there's a there's I, like the a fish gr- guy fish manphibian manphibian Manphibian. of course our good friend uh, manphibian i love i love marvel monster names love my yeah. oh, they're so jack good. kirby named a bunch of them they're all silly as shit manphibian yeah so they they stitch back together frank castle Did, what was the reason just to because they needed his help um because they're being hunted uh by monster hunters and they're like frank castle is like right one of the greatest mortal slayers of uh of evil and if we can um revive him and maybe he'll be so grateful that we brought him back from the dead that he'll just help us out it's kind of like it's kind of naively what they're hoping and the reader understands that this is a bad idea frank castle is not a nice dude manphibian knows it's a bad idea and is like this is on your head morbius and morbius is like but 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 it'll work so at this point you don't you're going into this and you know that he's going to end up as a frankencastle but yeah, I had no the, idea the, the the Legion of Monsters was going to show up. And it, it is a Legion of Monsters story. The The story is what if Punisher teamed up with the Legion of Monsters? Yeah, exactly. And um, just like we, I, I, I wasn't there. You didn't text me when you turned the page. Were you delighted? I was. I was so happy to see all these characters because I, like, I, I didn't know how he was going to come back as Frank and Cass. I don't know. I thought maybe he would be hit by lightning or some science stuff was going to happen because, you know, that's the world that Punisher lives in, not the world of Kaiju and Manphibian and the, uh, I feel like they are very racist samurai. (laughs) Um, yeah, I don't, I just, I felt so uncomfortable every time they appeared and talked in like stilted, broken English. Yeah, that definitely uh, rising sun headband covering their eyes. That was definitely a uh, aged poorly element of the comic. Although in the most tepid of defenses of Remender, a bunch of that was baked into those characters who preexisted this story. That's what it felt like. And you know that doesn't forgive his terrible taste which he continues to exhibit even at this later time in his career sometimes yeah but i guess as as we've uh touched upon in this episode sometimes bad taste is uh what what the the attraction in punisher stories i guess yeah that's not right almost almost certainly with with good old francis who comes lumbering out of the operating table and is like nope you're on your own get fucked but so Dr. Morbius, Dr. Michael Morbius, uh, star of one of my favorite bombs of the of all time, the film Morbius. It's Morbin time. He says it's Morbin time and he gets a needle and thread and just stitches the Frank Castle up. <laughs> just the chunks of meat that got like sliced <laughs> up like a hot dog. Like he was Franks and beans. Mm. Morbius just like fished them out of a sewer. Yep. And stitched them up. 
No, behind a dumpster, I think. Yeah, just like found the bits and was just like, I'll stitch this guy up. And I think things are going to start going my way. But obviously, uh, stitching together a corpse isn't enough to revive it. And there is um, an artifact that gets employed here. Yes, the bloodstone. And there's a bit of a mystery throughout it. Maybe not mystery, but like the the um, bloodstone being a corrupting influence on uh, Morbius and, you know, basically the ring. They're treating it like the ring, the one ring. Yeah, because the bloodstone can uh, bring out like rages in you. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you want for uh, the Punisher, a rage monster. Well, for, for the Punisher now turns into Frankencastle, whose like arm is a Gatling gun. Yeah, it's a cool like Tony Moore does an excellent job of drawing Frankencastle. Like, yeah, because this I love it. If this was drawn by uh, some of the artists on the earlier half, it would not be oh, nearly no. as memorable. And Tony Moore is just like a goat. Mm-hmm. Tony Moore um, has like a how to draw book, which is my favorite how to draw comics book. It's so great to read. Wow. Oh, I was like, where? I wonder how he came on. He was brought over by Remender because Remender worked with him on Fear Agent. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. But so um, what then transpires is like uh, another pretty breezy action em up with um, Punisher b- being asked to be like the, the righteous defender of monsters. And I remember at the time and I, re- I nostalgically thought of it this time, there's kind of this tension where you're like, I don't think they're going to do this forever. But like, how long are they going to do this for? I did, and um, it, it, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Certainly it's done pretty quick. Yeah, it, it it lasts, what, 10 issues thereabouts? Yeah, thereabouts, which I think actually is is perfect, right? It's like a, I want it just a little bit more and maybe that's for the best. I think we needed one more issue at the end there. I think just the, I, I think he was pretty done. He was ready, to, Remender was ready to leave. I think it needed one more issue to round it out. Because like the transition between Frankencastle 20, the crossover with Dark Wolverine and issue 21, there's just it's missing something like it. It feels like the rushed. Oh, no, this book just got canceled. I I could turn in one more script kind of yeah. thing. And Even yeah. though I don't know. I don't think that's what was going on because he, he has another arc. But well, and so um, finally, we have like our showdown with the um the rightful owner of the bloodstone that is giving Frank his unlife, uh, Ulysses bloodstone. Oh yeah. Did, did we forget about the weird German robot man or was that after Ulysses fight? No, with that's the before the, the, the hell Hellguard. I think, I think so. I think Hellguard. uh, Dan, Hellsguard. Um, Hell's Guard. Dan, what's it? Oh, my God. Dan Brereton drew the uh, backstory issue there. <laughs> I love Dan Brereton's art. It's beautifully painted. This painted look. Such a stark contrast to the rest. Although a nice pairing with Tony Moore. I don't know. I think that's why I really liked Frankencastle. The story is fine. It's kind of fun. But, like, the art team just brings out this kind of fun storybook but like dark storybook feel. It feels like Hellboy, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's got those, those pulp, pulp sensibilities. 
Yeah, when that was really hot in these early 2000s Marvel comics, mm. uh, Brubaker was really into that. A lot of like uh, weird, rickety Tim Burton, World War II, <laughs> clockwork Nazis. Yeah. Yep. All yep. those Other dimensions. I, so U- Ulysses Bloodstone is um, a character that pre predates the story by quite a bit. Yes, I vaguely know about him. I know he's kind of an asshole. And then Elsa Bloodstone, his daughter, is also an asshole and shows up here. But she's more associated oh, sorry, with Next Wave, right? Uh, well, that interesting, you should say. So Ulysses Bloodstone um, is kind of retconned to be this earlier character, but he properly shows up in like those 70s Marvel horror things with Werewolf by Night and Moon Knight and stuff. Yeah. That's where Bloodstone's first showing up. And then he's like a Hulk villain. And he's also involved in Cap Wolf. Like, he becomes a, a Cap villain, too. Okay. Okay, that tracks. But in his story, um, the, he's like Marvel Vandal Savage. He's from the <laughs> Hyborian Age. He met he fought oh, Conan the Barbarian. Oh, God. Which okay. I think rules. And the Bloodstone, um, like, drives him to have these angry rages and uh, makes him super powerful and strong. And, and it makes him kind of, he's like Craven the Hunter. He wants to kill the biggest, baddest monsters around. Hmm. Um, so in the early 2000s, who the f- who wrote that? There was an Elsa Bloodstone comic where Elsa Bloodstone is blonde and drawn to look exactly like Sarah Michelle Gellar. It was a Dan Abnett series. Oh, interesting. Called Bloodstone. And um, here, I'm going to drop in the chat uh, the Ooh. cover because I feel like this cover is going to really tell a whole story. Why don't you tell the listeners how this makes you feel? Hmm. Okay, so it's oh, hmm. I like the composition. Like I like the <laughs> idea. It looks like you know what? It reminds me of a Goosebumps cover. Yeah, it has you know the Elsa centered in the middle of the page, and there's a spooky castle in the background. Uh, the coloring is is very pastel, uh, slightly faded. It's got you know. 80s horror pulp cover feel as well um, with the crackling background. You know, it's inset. You've got the logo on top, got the credits on the bottom. It wouldn't be out of place on a vault comic book now. Sure. In terms of like the way it's laid out. But then you've got Elsa Bloodstone in the middle. Her shirt is pulled up riding so that you can see her back. There's a gun here. You know, it's. It's pretty cheesecakey. Yeah, that's very, a kind word for it. Yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable. And like the the tombstones are over her butt, <laughs> as if they are her butt. Yeah, which is also probably you know part of what gives you the ability to do a good composition gives you the ability to do that stupid shit. Yeah, why is the shirt riding up underneath the gun holster? Yeah, despite all uh, sense of fabric. Yeah, uh, the, the 2000s will always win. So this is Elsa Bloodstone's first appearance, and she's retconned in to be Ulysses' uh, daughter. Oh, OK. So she's fairly new. Yeah, th- uh, this is in the early 2000s, I think 2001. And then she doesn't appear again until she gets scooped up in Next Wave, where she's used kind of as a comedy character. Wild. But that like level of irreverence kind of stuck with her character. I don't think it ever really came off. You... No, I don't think so. She's a lot more of like a 
you know, like she she's a lot more grounded and involved and like scared of danger in her earlier appearance. Mm-hmm. And now she's like nothing phases her ever, ever, ever. Elsa is totally cool. And it's notable that uh, so this comic ends abruptly, but it actually got a conclusion not in the pages of Punisher. Wait, what? There was a comic that came out uh, a couple years later. I wrote it down in 2011 uh, called Legion of Monsters. Oh, oh, that was the conclusion to this story. Yes, it was uh, written <sighs> by a guy with his very first Marvel issue, Dennis Hopeless, who now goes by his uh, actual name of Dennis Halem, his given name. And um, drawn by Juan Doe. And I remember yep. coming off of Frankencastle and seeing the Legion of Monsters and then being like, Dennis Hopeless and Juan Doe, like, that's, those are some uh, enticing names for a comic book team. <laughs> and I really like Juan Doe's art. Not always, yeah. but that book, I, I've read that book before because I like the Legion of Monsters. And I was like, oh, it's, you know, Four issues, nice and simple. It's a lot of fun. I didn't yeah, know that was the conclusion to this story. Well, that it makes just, sense now. It subs out. It takes Frank Castle out, and now Elsa Bloodstone becomes the human that they go to to help defend monsters. Yeah, because even though she kind of sucks, <laughs> at least yeah. here, um, Frank Castle was no better. So she certainly, I mean, Elsa is markedly a little better because at least uh, she's like fine while doing it. I guess. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. But yeah, you can tell that uh, the idea of keep on doing some Legion of Monsters adventures uh, just got transferred to Elsa. And that was her first appearance out after Next Wave. Hmm. OK. Oh, and so damn. that's how her. Yeah. So that's how her personality was solidified. She feels so much more integral to the Marvel Universe, like this side of it, than I would have thought based on that history you just gave me. Yeah, but isn't that so interesting? Like, uh, Frankencastle ends up, um, although it doesn't directly cause a lot of those things, it, like, spun out and had a real lasting impact on a lot of Marvel things. Mm-hmm. That's bonkers. I kind of, I am disappointed how quickly it's resolved when he gets back his body at the end. Yeah, that that's what I mean by, like, we needed at least one more issue. So... You know, they shove the bloodstone into him after he gets really messed up midway through Frankencastle. And then that's when he really becomes the rage monster every so often. And so they dump him on Monster Island and let him, I guess, regenerate and then try to get the, the bloodstone back from him. And Elsa almost completely fucks it up for reasons. You needed some more conflict. I don't know. I... I love the art on the last issue. I don't love the the pacing of it. Yeah, no, like you said, it's it's clear that it was canceled. Yeah, uh, but then they tease the uh, miniseries that Remender follows this up with. I think it's called In the Blood. Yeah. And, you know, Frank's back doing his mob murder shtick. Shortly after this. Uh, Greg Rucka took over on Punisher and that for my money is like my definitive run on Punisher. Hmm. Okay. It does. It does a great job of doing what I liked out of this one, which is, um, uh, showing the stakes of Frank Castle showing off against like super people. Mm hmm. There's a very memorable issue where he fights Vulture. Ooh. And also that Frank Castle is not the protagonist of that book. You almost are always seeing him from somebody else's perspective. Good. I think that's, that's a good approach. And that's my favorite execution of that is in that Rucker run. Mm -hmm. And then it ends with um, 
the Avengers trying to take down Frank Castle, which is fun. And that's my favorite version of, of that story. And then <laughs> it goes into the trial of Frank Castle, which is also really good. Just like that. Yeah, that's my definitive Punisher trilogy. Wild. Okay. But, uh, now that you read it, was uh, Frank and Castle worth the wait? Would you recommend Frank and Castle to a friend? I would, but I think they have to have at least a little bit of a disposition towards Punisher stories. Because if they don't like the Punisher, I don't think they're going to really enjoy this so much. Maybe there's enough, you know, monster, you know, other stuff. But then there's a four issue crossover with Dark Wolverine. And that was, you know, okay, but it's just it's basically the the resolution of the the list. It's kind of a year later. It's you know, Castle Frank gets his revenge, basically, which you knew he had to do because yeah. Punisher wouldn't wouldn't let things lie and yeah. dock in such a little twerp sometimes. And I think if one that may have only happened when it did because they were planning on ending. Norman Osborn's time in the spotlight as Marvel, but also maybe because the run was coming to an end. But I could have seen that happening like five or six issues later, you know, have a little more of the Frankencastle stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, we had one or two, you know, we had a, a what was it, seven or eight issues with monsters. And then he's like, all right, time to. Fuck up the guy who who chopped me to bits. Yeah, that tracks for Frank. That does track for Frank. I would put the Frankencastle is definitely like a fun curiosity and like a great chapter in the Punisher story. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree. Definitely. It. I was going to say, if you like Punisher stories, I don't know if you'll like this one, but maybe you will. But if you like fun, you will. Yes. Yes, if you like fun and you like when Marvel comics are just weird, this is the one for you. So, speaking of fun and weird, what are we doing next time? Next time, we are heading uh, back to the movies and into deep space to check in with the MCU. Because we're watching Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Can you believe it? I can't. I, I can't. I can't believe it. Um, But next time when we come back, we will be talking about that movie. So if you want to watch it, it's playing on Disney+. Plus. Until then, where can they find you on the larger interwebs? Can they? You can't find... Yeah, no, you can't really find me on the larger interwebs. I'm kind of uh, going into like a hermit's uh, internet existence, and I like it. But, you know, uh, Rambling Moose is my handle on most things. So if you go to a service and search those words, you'll probably find someone claiming to be me. What about you, Elias? (laughs) Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, my email is still the best way to get in contact with me. It's erosner at multiversitycomics.com. I say this every time. I'm going to shut down my X account uh, at some point. But the fact that I've just called it that instead of Twitter means the brain rot has gotten me. Uh, this episode uh, was edited by Living Saphir, and our theme music is Excelsior by Carol Romo. We'll see you next time for a soundtrack worth of episodes in Guardians. Thank you.